Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, thank you, Shervon, uh, for reading the Word of God for us, and thank you, worship team, for leading us so well. Uh, as you're tuning in, why don't we take a moment to pray as we dig into the Word that was just read? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come upon us, that in the same way that you inspired James to write these words, that you would so now illumine our hearts and our minds to to grasp their meaning and their significance for us this day as we seek to follow you now in 2021 in the city of Toronto or wherever we happen to be in the world. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Our world is full of fakes, isn't it? Uh, as we all know, there is a huge ripoff market in the world. There's a fake version of everything from basketball jerseys to sunglasses. Uh, I was even reading about some people who tried to make fake COVID vaccines to, to make a quick buck. And there is a huge difference, isn't there, between something that's fake and the genuine article. So check out this picture. Can you spot the genuine article of these two sunglasses. Which one is authentic, the top or bottom? What do you think? So tell, tell someone you're with and see which one you think it is. Top or bottom? All right, if you said the bottom, then you were right. The bottom pair of sunglasses was the genuine article. Sometimes it's hard to tell, right? Sometimes it's difficult to tell the, the, the genuine from the false. And one of James's goals as he writes this letter to, to uh, the church, and not just one church, but the church in general, uh, is that one of his burdens was to help Christians, was to help followers of Jesus know whether their faith in Jesus is the genuine article. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he was one of his inner circle, and, and he was a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. And this letter really summarizes James's teaching. At this stage of the church, the church was kind of moving from infancy into adolescence. And as always happens, right, in our own teenage years, we get exposed to different ideas. We get out into the world, and we get pulled in different directions. And one of James's big concerns for the church is to guide them into what real faith faith looks like as competing ideas start to present themselves to them. And he gives them some key signs to look for of of genuine faith in Jesus. And so uh, we're going to consider God's mandate for his people as we've entered into this series this summer, considering justice. We are considering how justice connects with our personal faith in Jesus. Because as we talk about justice, some of us might be inclined to think, well, that's just for some of us. Or that is, you know, an add-on that some people who are really, you know, justice-inclined choose to take part in. Is that the case, really? Or is justice actually part of the package deal of this thing we call faith in Jesus? That's what we're going to consider. How does authentic faith connect to justice? Now, as I say the word faith, 
All kinds of images are probably coming to your mind. And the dominant one in our day uh, is that faith simply means belief in God as in, I think God is there. I intellectually, in my mind, believe God to be there and I believe God to be right. That's generally what faith means to us today, that, that something is true or that it exists. But what James brings us into is a definition of faith that is far deeper and far more robust. Check it out. Have your Bible open, please. We'll start actually in chapter two. Take a look at verse 17 of chapter two. He says, faith by itself if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, so there's this hypothetical dialogue going on, I have, you have faith, I have deeds. And James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So it's clear that James defines faith as being about a whole lot more than just what we think in our minds, it's also about our actions, our deeds, and on a deeper level, our loyalty. It's about obeying the one we've put our faith in. And here's the point. Here's the point of today's sermon. I mean, we're a few minutes in, and here's the bottom line, friends. Genuine faith is faith that works. Genuine faith is faith that works. It's not just thinking that Jesus is true or right or even having good intentions towards him, but it's about actually doing what he says. In chapter one, verse 22, just flip a page back, says this. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. In other words, James is cluing us into the fact that deception about this is possible. It's possible to think uh, that we have faith when we, we don't have genuine faith. Do not be deceived. He says, do what it says. Don't merely listen to the word. Do what it says. Just a quick point about the word do there. Do is a present tense verb. It is a command. And the present tense in New Testament Greek denotes a continuous action. So we should really read this as keep on doing what it says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Keep on doing what it says. And then he gives an illustration like any good preacher will do. He wants to illustrate his point. He says anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. He says it's like someone who looks at the mirror. Why do you look in the mirror in the morning? What's the point of that? Yeah, you need to take a look at your face to get yourself right for the day. You, know, you, you gotta get uh, some, some product in your hair. You, you gotta get the sleep out of your eyes or, or the crustified drool on your face from the night, right? We, we look in the mirror to do something about it. We look in the mirror to get an accurate picture of ourselves, to clean ourselves up and be ready for the day. Well, that's what the word of God does for us. It shows us an accurate picture of ourselves. It shows us what's wrong with us. It shows us what we need addressed in our hearts or in our minds and in our conduct. 
It, it shows us, you know, some of the glaring faults that are really obvious, like, uh, you know, uh, that everybody else sees, but sometimes we don't see. But it also shows us the, the hidden stuff too, the dirt and the sin deep in our hearts. And, and friends, the word of God does not do this in order to shame us, but in order to change us. That's really good news. It's not to shame us, but to change us, to clean us up so that we can be transformed. Merely hearing the word without doing it. It means the hearing was pointless. It means the mirror was held up before us and we saw ourselves, but we didn't do anything in light of it. And James's point is that if we do not do anything with what God tells us, it shows us that our faith isn't genuine. Why? Because if we really trust God, if we really put our faith in God, we'll do what he says. If we really trust that God knows what's right for us and good for us, we will do what he says. Raju, just advance the slide. I think my remote has uh, conked out on me. So if that's our approach to Jesus, if we hear the word and walk away without putting what he says into practice, the faith is not genuine. Now, the book of James causes all kinds of troubles for us moderners who were reared on the Reformation tradition, right? I mean, Martin Luther, who was one of the great reformers himself, he didn't really like the book of James because we are raised and, and our tradition is founded on the notion that we are saved by grace through faith alone, right? Turn your Bible to James chapter two, just after our text, verse 21. This is one of the most difficult teachings uh, that we need to reckon with as we talk about faith and works and go, well, if we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith, then, then why do works matter? Why do works matter? In chapter 221, James brings up the example of Abraham, which is interesting because Paul brings up the same example of Abraham to prove that we're justified by grace through faith alone. But now James is using Abraham as an example to talk about the importance of works. He says in verse 21, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see in verse 24, he says that a person is considered righteous or just, justified. The person is considered righteous or justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Whoa. Let's sort this out. James is not talking about another way of salvation. He is not pitting faith against works as if they were working against each other. He says in verse 22, as you can see, they work together. And then in verse 23, he affirms, hey, Abraham was righteous because he believed in God. That word believed is the same word for faith. He's saying Abraham was righteous because of his faith. However, what James is saying is that Abraham's faith was validated by his deeds. 
Abraham's faith was shown to be genuine by what he did, specifically in, in offering his son Isaac to God out of obedience to God. I love how Courtney Doctor expresses this uh, as she wrestles through the relationship between faith and work. She says, we're saved by faith alone, but once we're saved, that faith doesn't remain alone. When Jesus saves us, he intends to transform us. Our transformation is to be holistic, affecting not only our heads, what we think, but also our hearts, what we love, and our hands, what we do. I think that's so good. We're saved by faith alone, but once we're saved, that faith does not remain alone. You see, James is not contrasting faith and works. He's contrasting genuine faith and dead faith. That's what James calls it, dead faith. Genuine faith is faith that works. And in the gospel, it's not the case that, that faith is working towards salvation. As, as believers in Jesus, we're not working towards salvation, we're working from it. We're always working from it. We are working from God's radical intervention and rescue of us in and through Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And so from there we work in faith. So specifically, what are some of the works that faith does? And, and here's where James really brings the matter back to justice because the examples he uses are taken really straight from the book of Proverbs, which we considered last Sunday in, in the picture of the righteous person. And, and James, look at the example he gives in chapter one, verse 25. Have it open in your Bible. He says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it will be blessed in all they do. Now, we need to pause and unpack this phrase. What is the perfect law that gives freedom? What is James talking about? This is key to understanding this text and indeed the entire book of James. What James is referencing with that phrase, the perfect law that gives freedom, is Jesus' own summary of the entire law. When Jesus is asked in his ministry in Matthew chapter 22, he is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He says this in Matthew 22, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul or your life and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus says, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. What is the perfect law that gives freedom? It's, it's love of God and it's love of neighbor. This is the work that genuine faith in Jesus does. Love God, love neighbor. And what Luke 10 just beautifully does in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan is we might be tempted to go uh, parsing, right? Who's my neighbor and calculating? Ah, you, you live this far away from me, therefore you're not my neighbor. You're this ethnicity or you, you, you're of this religion, therefore you're not my neighbor. No, a neighbor is anyone God puts before us regardless of whether they are our enemy, whether they are part of our group or another group. That's the point of the Good Samaritan is that a Samaritan helps his enemy a Jewish man who had been beat up badly on the road. Love God, love neighbor. And James says, make that your focus. 
and continue in it, right? So it's easy to see how this is directly related to justice. I mean, last week we saw how justice is, is our action that, and, and steps we take to alleviate injustice. We disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage the community and those around us. At its heart, justice is about loving our neighbor. It's about loving our neighbor. And it's about loving God in whose image our neighbor is made. You see, the two greatest commandments, Jesus does give an order of priority. He says, this is first, love God, that's first. The second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But the love of God and the love of neighbor are deeply intertwined. It's not as if they're two completely separate things for it is the case that we often love God by loving our neighbor that this is indeed how the creator has called us to love him and worship him is, is to love that which he has made. We love God by doing justice. Again, you see this in uh, the, the, another example James gives uh, after he talks about the perfect law that gives freedom in uh, verse one, uh, chapter one, verse 27, he says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. And, and don't get hung up on the word religion. I feel like religion is like a swear word today, right? Uh, James is not using it in a negative way. It, when he says religion, he means our devotion. He means our worship. He means our lived faith. Uh, the devotion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There's two things he says that God accepts as, as the right kind of devotion to him. Look after the orphan and the widow. It's a specific call, so specific, to pursue justice with regards to the most vulnerable in the community. And second, to guard against the corruption of the world, to, to pursue holiness. The other example he gives in chapter two, verses 15 and 16, he says, suppose or brother or sister is without close. And again, he's talking about the need for deeds to, to, to work together with faith. So a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but then does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? I mean, this example is again, so tangible. Have compassion. Be charitable on the person. Don't just wish them well. Take a practical step to address their need. The point is that if justice is absent from our faith in Jesus, this points to a deficiency. James bluntly calls it dead faith in verse 17. Genuine faith is faith that works. It doesn't just hear God's word, it puts it into practice. You know, the coronavirus is not the first pandemic that the world has seen. In the year 249, a really catastrophic pandemic swept through the Roman Empire for 13 years. I mean, imagine 13 years. I mean, we're a year and a half in, and it looks like we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. 13 years 
of this pandemic in the Roman Empire, as many as 5,000 people per day were dying in the city of Rome at the height of the pandemic. Anywhere from 10 to 30% historians estimate of the population of the empire died. This guy named Dionysius was the Bishop of Alexandria at the time, and he gives us an account of how Christians were behaving and responded to the pandemic. He says this, during the great pandemic, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded loyalty, never sparing themselves, heedless of danger. They took charge of the sick. And many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Then he talks about the pagans, how everyone else was behaving. He says, the pagans behaved in the opposite way. At the first onset of the, the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled, even from their closest relations, throwing them into the roads before they were dead. You see the difference that the gospel makes in the people of God's response to the great need of a society in crisis. Christians drew near to the sick and the dying even took death upon themselves in order to minister while the pagans pushed people away into the streets. See, in the scriptures and in history, we're given the gift not only of the call to do justice, but practical examples. Like, what does this actually look like for us? Justice is the overflow of genuine Christian faith. And and so let's think really practically here. Let's think practically today, because let's face it, uh, you know, when I look at my newsfeed in the morning, there's about 12 different crises happening in the world that I didn't know were happening yesterday. I mean, we are saturated and exposed to every single thing, every single tragedy, every single injustice that is happening in the world. And, And let's face it, There can be this compassion fatigue that sets in. Or we can go, God, what am I to do? And we can feel hopeless in the midst of that. I want to say very practically for those of us who find ourselves in that situation, almost of being paralyzed by the sheer weight of it all. It's probably the case that as we follow Jesus in the mandate, in the requirement to do justice, that each one of us is going to find some small way and some simple way to to do justice. You can't be involved in everything. You can't probably even be involved in many things. There's probably one thing that Jesus might call you to be involved in. And, And the point in all of this, as we're thinking about justice, it can be easy to think, okay, as a Christian, my pastor is telling me to do justice. Now it's my job to change the world. It's my job. It's the church's job to change society. Friends, that's not our job. Our job is to worship Christ in all things. That's our job. He's the savior of the world. He's the one who can change people individually and societies systemically. He is the savior of the world. The point for us is to follow Jesus and obey him. And it's probably the case that Jesus has already given you something that you're passionate about, something that puts fire in your bones that you go, oh, this is unjust. I want to do something about it. Chances are it's already there. In the past week for me, what God really did in a cool way is he opened my eyes to see what was right in front of me. So as, as COVID is 
Lord willing, wrapping up and our kids are outside playing with other kids. I mean, one of the things that's happened as, you know, my kids haven't been in school physically since February is that kids attract more kids and they get together and they play. And so I find myself, you know, on a Saturday, I've got other stuff to do. I've got some sermon prep. I've got four kids of my own, but then it's like there's another four kids coming to my door asking for water, asking for snacks, asking for all this stuff. And as an introvert, let me just be honest, that can be really hard. It can be really hard. But what God did is he just stopped me and he said, look at these kids. He said, I've called you to look after the orphan and the widow. And in the Old Testament, the word for orphan also means fatherless. It's not just about having no parents. It's about being fatherless. And as I thought about those kids, the kids in my neighborhood, they're fatherless. Their moms are single moms. They're the people that God wants me to care for and extend grace to and, and, and give water to and really just acknowledge that you have value and you're important in a world where, let me tell you, it's so easy to just ignore kids. And God was just like, they're right in front of you. Let's be honest, we don't have to look far to find the orphan the fatherless or the widow in our, in our society. And I can get so caught up in thinking and fantasizing about the ideal way to do justice, right? There, there's all these ideal pictures that we can have, but when we do that, we actually miss the real opportunities that God is putting before us each and every day. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot easier to love someone who doesn't exist than the person right in front of you. It's the little actions, it's the little steps uh, that, that faith, genuine faith drives us to do that, that no one's going to see, that, that no one's going to know you did, that will nonetheless make a significant difference in the world because, friends, it's, it's not about you changing the world. It's not about you transforming society. It's about you worshiping Christ in all things. Let's take another scenario as we think practically about this. You, you walk out of the grocery store and someone is just destitute there sitting on the, on the sidewalk and, and they're asking for money. And uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What's the first thought? Maybe, maybe it's that inner debate, right? How, how is a few dollars going to break the cycle of poverty in this person's life? If you're well-read and, and intellectual, maybe you're going, oh, well, the experts tell me that throwing money at a problem doesn't actually make a difference. I've read when helping hurts. Or maybe you get defensive. You know, that person's just gonna use what I give them to feed their addiction. I don't want to enable them. Or maybe some of us have just grown so accustomed to this in, in the city of Toronto that we found the easiest thing to do, the thing that taxes me the less, the thing that causes me the least amount of anxiety and discomfort is just to harden my heart and ignore them and get into my car and go on with my day. Friends, I'm guilty of all of those. For whatever reason, maybe you helped them, maybe you didn't, but we so often walk away feeling anxious or frustrated or confused. What's the right thing to do? Let me suggest this to you. What if our first thought was not to cue the tape of all the reasons why we should or should not help? 
is not to go through all the, the different political theories on what's going to make a, a difference in our society. But what if we just paused and said, Lord, how do you want to glorify me? How do you want me to glorify you here? Lord, how do you want me to worship you here? Lord, how do you want me to love you in this circumstance? How do you want me to love my neighbor here? And let God lead you. Friends, faith that works is about these little steps of obedience. God isn't asking us to change the world. He's asking us to glorify him by walking faithfully and obediently with him. And let me just say, in general, for every look that we take at our newsfeed on our phone or out into the world and we see the problems of the world, for every one look, we need to take 10 looks at the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, who is the savior of the world and is leading it toward his good ends. We need 10 looks for every one look we take at the world. He needs to fill our vision. So when James calls us to look intently into the perfect law of give, that gives freedom, this is ultimately a call to look at Jesus himself. Because James knew, and, and let's be honest, we also know that we fail. We fail to love God. We fail to love our neighbor. I love how Leonor led us in that prayer of confession. We need to confess that every day. God, I fail. I fail. And let's face it, Jesus is the only human who didn't. He's the only one who loved God and loved his neighbor. And for both, for the love of God and love of neighbor, he died on the cross. We don't fulfill the perfect law that gives freedom. Jesus did and he does in us. And so friends, we can look to him. We can have faith in him that he is gonna fulfill in us that law of love and that we get to participate in his life in the power of the spirit. And let me just say, our greatest resource in doing justice, our greatest resource for all of this is his own love for us. It's the love he showed us on the cross. It's that, it's that invitation from Isaiah to, to come if we're hungry or thirsty and, and not give any money and receive the generosity of God who has satisfied our thirst, who's rescued us from sin and evil, who is bringing about his good purpose in our lives by grace. He's so good to us and it's his love that can motivate us, that is our resource for walking this out for living a genuine faith that works. It's when we see the Son of God lay down his life for us with such grace that gives us tremendous power. A.B. Simpson was one of the pioneers of this denomination that we're part of. He said this, he said, the love which the Holy Spirit teaches is not confined to class or condition, but like the love of God himself is able to reach and embrace not only the stranger and the alien, but also the unworthy, the unlovely, the unloving, and even the most malignant enemy and the most uncongenial object. And then he says this, it is nothing less than the love of God himself infused into our heart. It's nothing less than the love of God himself infused into our heart. That's the power we need to live a faith that works. The love of God is the source for the life that does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with our God. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word.
that holds the mirror before us. And I pray, even as James encourages us and exhorts us, that we would not hear these words and walk away without responding, without doing what you ask of us. So Holy Spirit, continue to speak to us, to lead us now as we respond with a song of worship. I pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.